What's up, guys? It's David Hess from the Rising Above podcast. Have you ever thought or dreamed about starting a podcast? Well, look no further. Anchor has all the tools necessary to record a podcast from your computer or phone. You heard that right. They make it so simple. When you host your podcast on Anchor, they will distribute your podcast on platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Honestly, it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place, which is why I host on Anchor. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. In this episode, I sit down and talk with the campaign director of Michigan Justice Advocacy, Rich Griffin. Rich talks about his life behind bars and what it was like going into prison at a very young age. Now, there's something I talk about quite often on the podcast, and uh, it's that we are not our mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. You've made mistakes. I've made mistakes. Everyone does things that hurts the people that they love. And uh, we are not that. As long as you choose to try to make a more proactive step into fixing the mistake you made. I believe people can change completely. To think that to think that, and to have the perspective that once a shitty person, always a shitty person, is completely absurd. And in Rich's case, he made a very big mistake at a very young age and had to pay the consequences for his choices. But as a well thought out and educated adult, Richard has used his experiences to help those who were like him. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with him. This was by far the longest episode I have ever done. But I left this conversation feeling informed, and honestly, I have a different perspective of the mass incarceration industry here in Michigan. Please consider following me on social media for future giveaways, and don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. Thank you, and I hope you guys enjoy. All right. Welcome to the Rising Above podcast. My name is David Hess, and today I have Rich Griffin with me. He is an advocate for the Michigan Justice Advocacy Program. And what that is, it's, it's a, well, right now they're working on legislation to try to um, uh, reform the prison system. Yeah. Um, so I guess before we get in, into that, I want Richard to introduce himself, explain where he's from, and a little bit about his past and how he got involved with this program. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Um, I am technically from West Michigan, Grand Rapids. Uh, born and raised there until I was about 16 years old. Um, I currently work in Lansing and other areas of the state, but uh, coming from Grand Rapids, um, I come from a biracial uh, mother and father. Uh, grew up in the inner city, um, late 80s, early 90s, when, you know, uh, the illicit drug sales, violence, and, you know, urban communities was on the rise. Um, grew up relatively normal home uh, both of my parents were around um, and, and were married for you know 40 plus years so uh-huh. I always had my father in the home uh, that brought other issues between he and I but he was always present um, but uh, around the age of 11 I got involved with a, a group of friends and associates that you know were, were not as they weren't in a privileged, as a privileged position as myself. Many of them didn't have their fathers in the homes. Uh, you know, mothers were, you know, either on drugs, missing in some capacity. And um, I got involved in a lot of juvenile delinquent stuff, uh, <laughs> like very, very early. Uh, by the time I was 13, I had been uh, incarcerated in juvenile facilities a couple of times. 
and I served about 90 days in a group home, which is a foster care system, kind of, but you know, ran by the juvenile or probate department of, of uh, juvenile department of probate court. Um, after a, a short period of that, uh, I, I was released and then came back to my mother's home, and, and then I left at the age of 15 uh, on my own for good. And probably the worst decision I could have ever made. <laughs> about, I would say about 18 months, 20 months after I moved out of my mother's home, I, um, I was arrested and charged for open murder, assault wow. with intent to commit murder, and felony firearm in Kent County, Michigan. Um, I was automatically waived as a juvenile, tried as an adult in uh, Kent County Court, convicted of second degree homicide, felony firearm and assault with intent to commit murder and sentenced to serve the rest of my life in prison in Michigan. At 15 years old? 16. I was 16. just had turned 16, um, arrested and convicted prior to and sentenced prior to turning 17. Um, and then I was committed to the Michigan Department of Corrections at 17 years old um, to serve two life sentences. Fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, I don't know how many years it was, but in 2012, there was a United States Supreme Court case, Miller v. Alabama. A young kid in Alabama committed a homicide, and the United States Supreme Court ruled that it was an Eighth Amendment violation. The Eighth Amendment is that, you know, everybody is free from cruel and unusual punishment. Um, United States Supreme Court ruled that, you know, sentencing any juvenile or someone under the age of 18 to spend the rest of their natural life in prison was cruel and unusual punishment. And they reversed it, but they, they didn't make it retroactive. And for folks who, you know, aren't legal beagles, um, retroactivity just means that it would apply to everybody who was incarcerated before the change. Um, four years later, 2016, by this time I have I've served 21, 22 years. Okay. Um, they made it retroactive. <clears throat> now, because it was a second degree uh, conviction, I couldn't, it was impossible for me to serve natural life. Um, the Michigan statute wouldn't allow it. So my sentence was a parolable life sentence, which me okay. meant that after 15 years, I became eligible for parole. Uh, the philosophy in Michigan coming out of the 80s, uh, Engler administration, you know, through the 90s, the parole board was uh, tough on crime, you know, to the T. And their philosophy was life means life, whether it's parolable or non-parolable. If you wow. have a life sentence, you'll serve life in prison. Um, the Miller v. Alabama ruling uh, assisted me because mm -hmm. as a juvenile, even though I have an adult sentence, I was a juvenile when I was convicted. Um, and in 2017, upon my regular review, which you know I was doing five-year intervals of seeing the parole board, okay, um, I was released. I received a parole in September of. 2017, I was released November 28, 2017. Wow. Right after uh, my 39th birthday. So 23 years uh, straight in the Department of Corrections and four years of correctional control in the community. Wow. So I'll be off of parole, I think, in two months. Wow. Yeah. So what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I have these conversations with many folks like they come from all walks of life and I'm in this moment reminded of a conversation I had with a uh, film student from USC and I can't think of his name um, 
he was working in the community for faith-based organizations trying to you know um, galvanize folks for stories that you know came out of the community mm-hmm. we talked and he you know and i mentioned to him like i just served 23 years in prison you know yada 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 like no big deal to me but he like his mouth is wide <laughs> open. Like, what how did you survive it now my, my, my response to him was, was going to be canned. Um, at that time, I had been working in the legislative field for, for, for a little bit um, for the ACLU of Michigan, and I'll touch on that as here in a minute, but I had a response to give. And, and I just paused and I didn't give him the, the canned answer. The canned answer was the truth, mm-hmm. but it, it, it you know, I, I explained to him that I didn't survive it. I don't know why he thought I survived it. Nobody at the age of 16 who goes into any adult prison facility survives that. It breaks you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it breaks your spirit. If if there's children that have been convicted, you know, or sentenced to spend ridiculous amounts of time in prison, you know, not a year, not three. Mm-hmm. Uh, a year is is tough for a kid. I imagine. Um, but but serving you know two life sentences upon on top of you know a couple of years for firearms, you know when you get to the fourteenth fifteenth year, you, you your soul is is broke by then, and, and 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 that's what you know the correcting part is is to dehumanize you and mm-hmm. and, and break you down so that you you're, you're exhausted and right. and can't rebel or buck or be antisocial anymore. Um, but it's it's hell, man. It's psychological hell. Physically, anybody can deal with prison. I mean, everybody in prison not tough. <laughs> <laughs> everybody there not tough. Um, but 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 psychologically, it's the worst thing to deal with in the world. You know, it's you're putting human human beings in a cage. You're putting it, them in a closet. In a closet. You and your brother would ha- you you wouldn't have a cell this size. I mean, you're talking a third of this maybe. Wow. For two people, two grown adults, um, with a bathroom. Can't even lay on the ground. No. Do a push up. Nah, nah, <laughs> not not with the other person in there. <laughs> it's, no, but it, it is. It's, um, you know, I, I had someone asked me this question the other day. A good friend of mine who's uh, in, in, in a privileged position, directing an organization, doing some similar work, and he was like, you know, there's some people that just deserve to be there, Rich. And that's tough to say that it's tough to say that I, I don't disagree but the way in which you know our civilization here in America approaches crime and punishment is archaic mm-hmm. at best um, and, and you know those things need to be looked at we need to make adjustments in how we how we treat folks because excuse me I, I would say out of the 2.2 million people incarcerated in, in America in, in, in our federal prisons and jails, you know, 65% of those crimes were survival crimes. Um, you know, they were trying to survive poverty. And, and, and that's at the root cause of, you know, folks that we see, you know, through the mass incarceration wave over the last 30, 40 years is we were dealing with a poverty issue and, and our response as irresponsible Americans was to just put people in closets. Right. So um, once I got, I got released in November of uh, 17, uh, prior to my release, I was attending college at Jackson um, 
So Albion. did you have a, a game plan as far as like when you 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 knew you were going to get released, right? No, I, you did, I, you didn't, I, know. I didn't know I would get out until. So <clears throat> the process for uh, a lifer is um, you would get a notification that the parole board wants to review your file. A file review only means that they'll take a half-hearted look at your, your prison jacket and say, hey, well, I mean, he got into a fight seven years ago. We don't, we're not interested in talking to him. Wow. Or he's not had a misconduct in 20 years. Uh, he's learned how to manipulate the system. We don't want to talk to him. Really? Either way, you know, it's like either way you go, you're kind of stuck with it. So it, it's, a, it's a gamble. It's a crapshoot. Mm -hmm. You never know if they're going to be interested in reviewing you or not. Wow. Um, I got reviewed in 07. Um, I had received a five-year continuation. I was uh, the judge, the sentencing judge in my case, uh, wrote the parole board in 2009 and, you know, asked for them to release me. They reviewed me in 2010 and then denied me and continued me on another five-year installation. Um, in 2012, I was reviewed again. Uh, same thing, another five-year installation. Jeez. Uh, 2017, I was told that I'd be seeing the parole board February. February came, it was reviewed. Um, at that point, they need to make a determination on whether or not you're going to have a public hearing. A public hearing is uh, two to three board members present <clears throat> and uh, somebody from the Attorney General's office uh, for the state of Michigan and anybody in support or in opposition to your parole. Mm -hmm. Um, I received a public hearing uh, in August, and I got a parole in September. Wow! So it's immediately, a very yeah, very lengthy process to get there. But the moment they make the decision, uh, the parole was was you know like stamped uh, September eighth, and they had sixty days to release me. So I was wow. released in November. So what was that moment like? The moment I mean, you had seen the inside of prison for twenty three years. <laughs> yeah, or more, um, or more. Tough, because. At every stage of the parole process, I was concerned whether or not I would make it to the next point, like whether right. or not there would be a fight or some misunderstanding that I was, you know, caught up in. Let's mm -hmm. say there's a riot and I have a decision to either, let's say, for instance, you know, somebody in the unit says, hey, um, they found maggots in the potatoes last night. They put potatoes on the menu today. We don't want nobody going to child. If you go to the child hall, we're going to stab you. Uh, either don't go to the child hall and I participate in this riot right? or I go home. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, things like that can happen. And you just right. think about all of the possibilities, things you've seen over the years. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it was like the angst and the anxiety was out of, the, out of this world for, the, like, those couple of months. Um, I imagine. I get the parole in September, and then I was transferred from – uh, Cotton Correctional Facility to Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility, which is like the re-entry hub for folks going to West Michigan. Okay. Um, I went there for 60 days, and, you know, the day that I, I walked out, it was it was light, but it, it was a lighter, I felt lighter, but there was so much for me to be concerned about because now I'm stepping into a world, I'm going back to a society that I know nothing about. It's completely changed different. Since, since you went yeah, in. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I wasn't coming home to, you know, you're incarcerated for 23 years. Things happen. I lost mm -hmm. my mother several months to cancer right before wow. I got out. Um, you know, most of my family unit had been dispersed, you know, death, moving away, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't coming home to the same realities. 
Um, and because of my involvement with different college institutions while I was inside, um, I was TAing a, a social and anthro course for Albion while incarcerated, um, okay. doing work for with the University of Michigan and their PCAT program, um, which is a creative prisoner creative arts program where they get students to come in and and uh, facilitate workshops and like improv and creative writing, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we created debate teams and did all of this with, with, cool. with colleges and support. The moment I was released, they calling me, asking me to come and speak about juvenile justice. Oh, wow. And I, the first, I was home five days, um, and I was on a panel at the University of Michigan with uh, prosecutors, judges, uh, and, and formerly incarcerated people. I was asked by like seven people to come speak somewhere. Wow. And within a few months, I came to the attention of the ACLU. They were posting positions for uh, their Smart Justice campaign, which okay. they were rolling out over the last few years to uh, half the car, you know, incarcerated population. <clears throat> and um, I, 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 I obtained a job with the ACLU in Michigan and, and started organizing for them around um, you know, pre-trial issues, bail issues, mass incarceration focused legislation, and um, had a wonderful education there. I worked for them for a couple of years, and hey, um, it <laughs> changed my life. You know, Sounds it like it. Changed my life. I got involved. I got bit by the political bug, and it just, you know, all of the um, all of the social ills that I see, it just it, it gave me a platform. It gave me a way by which to address them. Um, so, I, I, you know, that's kind of how I get here today is, um, you know, being incarcerated, advocating for myself in so many ways, uh, working, you know, my legal case, other folks' legal cases, being ingratiated in that, just in the, in the know of that type of information. Um, and then, you know, seeing everything going on in the world and being released and, you know, into a society that has not... It, it's worse off now than it was when when I when I left. Really, you know. So it's it, I, I that, think that's how you look at it. In, in many ways, I mean, we look at the millennial generation is has expedited transformation. Mm -hmm. Ridiculous technology. Yeah, technology wise, we're, we're all over the place. Yeah, we know everything. Yeah, we know everything now. Um, but in the way in which we treat people, we we've gotten worse. We've mm -hmm. gotten worse, uh, and, and I, re I remark on that because I recall being a seven, eight-year-old. That's your water, by the way. Thank in you. In case you get there, you're talking a lot, so. <laughs> I, I'm seven, eight years old, universal understanding in my neighborhood, street lights come on, you will be in, you better be in the mm -hmm. house. Yeah. Um, a group of buddies of mine, seven, eight of us going to the mall, at nine, ten years old, we see an old woman, you know, we may help her. Mm -hmm. We won't be disrespectful to her. She may tell us, pull our pants up, quit cussing. Mm -hmm. We're going to shut up. Right. Yeah. Today, you'll be lucky if you don't, if you can't keep them kids from assaulting that lady. Mm -hmm. Today, you'd be lucky if your children come home at night. Like in, coming from where I grew up at, like those right. children aren't even their mothers are their best friends. Right. I mean, she's only fifteen years older than most of them. <laughs> in many yeah. cases, th this is the reality. We're growing yeah. up with our parents. Yeah. So there's no respect for that 
What do you think's changed? Come in, because I mean, you you were incarcerated, so you probably have more of a a nuanced perspective of everything. You've seen it before, and you've seen it after. Mm -hmm. What do you think has changed in society to where kids are like that now? Because I, it's something that I I think has changed since even I was younger. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm I'm a, technically a millennial, mm-hmm. but you know, same thing. Like Streetlight came on, you're inside, yeah. and you don't you don't question anything. You don't question your mom. <laughs> she's she's yelling at you. <laughs> like, yeah, I I think what shifted is 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 the general narrative in America. I, I go I always use this example. Same sex marriage was proposed to the U.S. Supreme Court time before it was finally passed mm-hmm. it had been introduced prior right but the culture of america the narrative in america wasn't ready to see that right well once we got comfortable in our own skin and we're more accepting in the narrative the culture shifted mm-hmm. then it was easy to get it passed oh, it's the right thing to do pass it right yeah late 80s throughout the 90s um the mothers and fathers of those adolescent children were children of uh, those children were children of baby boomers entirely different philosophy on parenting Mm -hmm. Um, we lost a lot of that and we lost a lot of it because of the prison industrial complex we lost Mm -hmm. a lot of it because the introduction of drugs into urban areas in america um and there may be a few policies that help usher, you know, some changes along, but the family dynamic between, uh, let's, you know, there's a lot of single parent homes in America, um, no matter race or... Especially now. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's almost commonplace now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the narrative behind that has shifted so much that um, the lack of... I won't just point to the lack of fathers in the homes of folks throughout the 80s and 90s, et cetera, but the lack of the male presence, the lack of a a male idea or figure to look at. Mm -hmm. I told a buddy of mine yesterday, um, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the show Good Times. Um, I think I've heard of it. There was a, a father on there. He, he played the role of the father, and this he was a blue-collar factory working guy, went to work on time, came home on time. Mm-hmm. No, like, no BS pops, you know. Right. Nothing, right, real tough guy. Yeah, pull yourself up by the bootstraps we, type we of person. We don't have none of them fathers in our communities no more. <laughs> like, you know, then other, we also mentioned uh, Mr. Cosby. Um, he was the, you know, American dad mm-hmm. for a lot of kids. That yeah. Dudes looked to that like, wow, I wish I had that in my home. Mm-hmm. Um, those who did have it wished their fathers were like him, and those who didn't have it wished they had some semblance of a father in home. That whole idea shifted. Um, fathers mm-hmm. were, your, your connection with your father or your uncle, your older brother was through a prison call or a prison visit. Right. Or I can't wait for my uncle to come home. My, you know, I can't wait for you know to be introduced to my big brother after he served time in prison. And I always go back to prison because in, you know, black communities going to jail is a rite of passage for men. I knew I would be incarcerated at some point in my life. I, I hope that it wouldn't have been sorry longer. about that. Oh no problem. <laughs> 
for about six days, but you know, to to my chagrin, that didn't happen. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> this cat, I tell you, hey, I love it. I love it. Very interesting and intelligent <laughs> species they are. They are. <laughs> I call her. Uh, what do I call her? I call her um, gang, little gangster, cause she she's from the streets. She she showed up in our garage one day, just like some. Just haven't left. Yeah, hasn't left. We made her a house cat, and she's, right, she's right. been here since. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yep. But yeah, it, it, it's you know, um, our, the narrative in our culture has changed. It's shifted. Mm-hmm. There's a, a lack of respect, self-respect, a lack of of you know respecting uh, authority, um, and and kids are rebellious i mean they'll be like that in every generation they have to go through some form of rebellion i I mean most teenage generations do everyone has had their thing whether it was um driving fast and down the road (laughs) and and busting up mailboxes with a baseball bat or whether it was you know smoking marijuana on the bleachers yeah somewhere down the line teenage youth were always rebellious um but but I, I think of the relationship between a teacher and a student. We we go to school to study a curriculum that the teacher has been instructed and trained in. Right. If the student doesn't get something about the curriculum, doesn't understand the curriculum, doesn't know how to make the curriculum operate, whose fault is it, the child or the, the teacher's? Well, it's the teacher's responsibility to make sure that the child understands Right. It. So even if they have to get creative with that child mm-hmm. and that child alone, yeah. that's their job. And that's our duty as, as parents and as, you know, adult figures and communities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's our responsibility to take a little extra time here or there right. when we see that, you know, somebody's just not getting the, the path, the right path to life. Right. Maybe we can give them some direction and, and you know. We're, we're all so scared of our youth. We're petrified of them. I think a lot of it has to do with the lack of resources as well because, like, with, with teachers, for instance, they don't get paid enough no, to, no. to teach. I mean, they're teaching 30 kids in a class, and then, you know, five kids are struggling. They don't have the, the time. Well, if I'm successful to, with some pushes here, I maybe we can get, you know, teachers and education department more money. I mean, we, we spend – Michigan spends – billion a year on keeping people in prison. Uh, 1.6 billion of it goes directly to keeping folks housed in institutions. 1.6 billion dollars. You know, on on average, each student in a classroom that you're talking about Mm -hmm. is probably allocated roughly $2,100. Wow. And you know, of of instruction time. Right. They're getting right. about two thousand bucks worth of instruction time wow. in a year. When we're spending one point six to keep the old people in jail. Wow. So yes, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a very nasty thing to look at like, like you know, having children in, in this state in our society that we have to do go the extra mile to advocate for a decent education mm-hmm. because the education system is so maxed and, and overwhelmed. Now, speaking about education, what's the education system like in prison? You'd said you'd went to college mm-hmm. while you were, while you're incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Um, is there quite, quite a bit of opportunity for people to, to do that? Or what, what is that like? There hadn't been. Um, when I was first committed to MDOC, um, Pell grants were like right on their way being phased out. Okay. 
Um, and so for, you know, the better part of 20 years, there was, I mean, if you didn't pay out of pocket for a correspondence course, you just, you were, I mean, you could do that. Mm -hmm. um, but that was so convoluted. It was so, the process was convoluted, difficult to do. Um, you'd always have to send money out of your account. Sometimes administratively, it just wasn't, you know, conducive. And how would you get that money? From family members, oh, know, okay. people sending it to your account, maybe specifically for that course or what okay. have you. Uh, but around, I want to say 2014, Jackson College in, in Jackson County uh, got MDLC to approve a program where they would send adjunct professors in and teach courses inside the facility. They used a model that was already present under the guise of what's called Inside Out. Um, MSU has done it, U of M, uh, Jackson, Albion, I believe Eastern has as well. Uh, okay. But they'll have a particular course that is brought into the facility taught by that professor bringing 15 students from the community inside the prison facility mm -hmm. to have a, that course with 15 students from inside that's kind of cool so it, it was a you know a, a, a meshed learning stage seminar taught course um that kind of reminds me sorry that kind of reminds me of what they do at our work uh, we always we I work at GM okay. and we always refer to it being like a prison yeah. and they do the same thing. <laughs> they, bring in, they bring in people to teach classes at the plant. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's exactly what it was. Just us sharing space with 15, you know, community students at that college and wonderful experience. Um, then I, Jackson also brought in, you know, uh, year long courses and, you know, guys were obtaining associates and bachelor wow. degrees very quickly, very, wow. very quickly. Um, you know, I remember remarking to a, a professor, they were like, listen, you know, the student body in here, GPA is, you, you guys are killing on-campus students. And I'm like, wow. get out of here. Stop. You, you, stop it. You're lying. You're lying. <laughs> and I thought about it. I said, well, most of your students are like 21, 22. Like, they don't even have the attention span mm -hmm. to focus on what they need to. They're right. out trying to get pizza and hang out or something. <laughs> when I'm sitting in a cell all day with nothing to do but study right. my homework and be prepared for the next week's class. Right. So, it, you know, it, it was a different approach. And guys were, you know, it, it, I think it built a lot of self-esteem for folks. I, I seen a lot of men stand up a little taller, heads up a little higher mm -hmm. um, when they were receiving 4.0 GPAs in courses when, you know, 10 years ago they couldn't read. Wow. That's so insane. like, yes, it, you know, it, but it, it wasn't as accessible as you would would think. Mm -hmm. um, the latter part of, so I would say from, from like 2014 through um, several colleges were doing that. The kick, the, the drawback to that is uh, for tuition at a community college, we were paying what uh, folks are paying at U of M and MSU for tuition. No way. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and That's so it's, it's gotten a little, it's it's gotten a little thinner. The programs have mm -hmm. gotten thinner. The involvement has gotten thinner just based on the wow. financial burden. That's it's impossible to, to, you know, pull and, it off. And that's still the, the people who are incarcerated still have to pay for that. Yeah. Or, wow. or their loved ones. Somebody wow. in there. So, like, I mean, if, you know, you have a wife and she's the only person sending mm -hmm. you money, she either sending you money for cakes and cookies or she's sending you money for your college. Wow. 
See, I just don't understand, like, if somebody has, especially if somebody has the opportunity to get out of prison, mm-hmm. why aren't we pouring, why aren't there resources available for people to educate themselves? Well, I, that, that, that goes to the question of what is corrections for? Mm-hmm. Um, throughout America, there's this narrative of being tough on crime. I mean, we started to hear it in the latter part of the 70s. Um, administrations, you know, Nixon uh, moving into the 80s and, mm-hmm. and looking at uh, the Reagan administration, um, the policies passed by the Reagan administration, which were aimed at drug users. Um, that policy criminalized poverty. It made an impoverished behavior criminal. Selling drugs. And- well, not selling them, using them. Using them. Just using them. They made that criminal. I mean, selling drugs had always been criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the moment that you criminalize poverty, you see, especially in Michigan, from 77 or 78 through 2015, mm-hmm. 700% spike in the prison population. Wow. Well, those are because of policies that were in place or were, were moved on each decade. Right. In the 80s, it was, you know, the, the anti-drug policy through the Reagan administration. In the early 90s, it was the uh, the policy by the Clinton Insti- administration. Um, and then, you know, also, uh, I believe, uh, there, was it 96, 95, 96, the Clinton administration changed the uh, habeas corpus uh rules and regulations so like you could only file one uh a change a put a dpa limitation so it's the anti-effective death penalty act okay. where it precludes a person from filing multiple habeas corpus petitions to the federal court because the federal court is usually where uh, uh, someone who's been convicted in michigan will will get the most action in an appeal um state courts the appellate court michigan supreme court have not always been inmate friendly mm-hmm. if you will so <clears throat> if you you know you're incarcerated in michigan you're doing legal work or you have an appellate attorney the general philosophy is you'll get most of what if you're going to get any relief it'll be in the federal courts well in the mid-90s clinton changed that and so we, we won't continue to have these petitions to get out and have all of these rent you know these other variables and levers that let people out of prison so Putting that limitation on it put a backlog on prison, and, and our population mm-hmm. swelled even more. Um, and then, you know, as Michiganders, we got behind something that was bad. We got behind a bad piece of policy, man. We got behind truth and sentencing, and it, it you know, we we paying a hefty ransom for it every year. You want to explain what that is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, truth and sentencing is a uh, is is mandatory minimum sentencing scheme in Michigan. Um, scheme. <laughs> so. <clears throat> prior to truth and sentencing you would serve 85 percent of your sentence if you were convicted of and sentenced to 10 years in michigan you would be paroled after about eight years seven months that okay. was when your earliest release date would come up but if let's say you're serving a 10 to 25 year sentence you could be you know continued until that 25 year sentence is over okay now Truth and sentencing came in into effect 98, 99, and 
it was sold and packaged to, to Michigan citizens as these inmates will serve 100% of the sentence that you heard them receive, speaking to the victims, wow. right? They'll serve 100% of that sentence, minimum sentence. They won't have to see a parole board. They'll be released into the community because of presumptive parole based on the amount of time that they've served incarcerated, if, mm-hmm. even if those were the terms being used. It's just paraphrasing the process. Um, that wasn't the truth. Truth and sentencing came in. Folks were getting sentenced in Michigan courts. Let's say that same person got a 10-year sentence. He served the 10 years and then was reviewed by the parole board, and the parole board gave him a 24-month continuation. So in 18 months, he's reviewed by the parole board again, now having close to 12 years in, and they give him a 12-month continuation. Wow. So when he goes back in another eight months after that, he served in excess of 126% of his time. Mm-hmm. So we told victims and citizens that this was the right policy to pass. Mm-hmm. This was the right thing to do because it would make Michigan safer. Michigan still ranks top 20 in homicides, top 20 in assaults, top 20 in rapes, top 20 in robberies. Wow. In the nation, we've no safer. We haven't changed status whatsoever. No, we're, we're no safer today than we were in 1995. <laughs> wow. There's more people here, mm-hmm. so it doesn't, you know, per capita doesn't look right, the same. Right. But no, 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 no. Make no mistake about it. The policies, you know, truth and sentencing was, in effect, a result of the 1992 passing of Mr. Biden's legislation that was written in 88. Um, he was instrumental in writing that policy, mm-hmm. uh, the Crime Bill Act, for, for, for the Clinton administration. And that gave states incentives to institute mandatory minimum sentencing. If you create mandatory minimum sentencing, the federal government will give you money to build prisons to prepare for the boom of folks you'll get. Wow. That's insane. And we we bid on it because we didn't, our political efficacy was trash. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it wasn't us. It wasn't our son. It wasn't our father. It wasn't our mother. Mm-hmm. And we just kept our heads in the sand. And then we look up, and we're part of Clint. You know, part of the tax that you're paying on the General Motors is a two point three billion dollar tab, and just around the corner at Department of Corrections. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we right now we're all complicit in it um, mm-hmm. because we haven't, you know, demanded for things to change. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy that we'll we, a state would spend that amount of money under the guise of keeping people protected, mm-hmm. and you're no safer. Right. I mean, only one percent of the people in prison will never get out. Currently, there's thirty-one thousand folks incarcerated in Michigan. Wow. Throughout about twenty-nine to thirty-three prisons. How many? Do you know how many of them are are violent? I, I couldn't say. You couldn't uh, say. Okay. maybe 40 to 55 percent i mean it's possible that it's even more but here's the thing let's say that 70 percent of the folks that are incarcerated in michigan are there for violent crime Mm -hmm. um folks incarcerated that means about 310 of them will never see the outside of a cell right only one percent will never get out 
So everybody else is they're gonna live on the street from you. So at some point, you'll be in the grocery store with them. When you go bowling, you'll be with them. When you take your kids to Kalahari, they'll be there with their kids. Mm-hmm. Like these people are getting out. Yeah. The, the, you can't keep them from getting out. I mean, you can, but like, right. legally, they're coming home. These were once your neighbors before. Mm-hmm. They'll be your neighbor again. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I'd much rather give somebody an education, give them some programs, get them ready to come for society. Back in, yeah. I mean, I you know, I had a, a senator, <clears throat> I'll leave nameless, ask me if I, before he knew my backstory, asked me if I would want to have a convicted murderer live next door to me. And I say, yeah, I would if he was like me, <laughs> if he, mm-hmm. you know, took the steps to change. And he's like, well, what do you mean like you? And I had to explain to him that I had been convicted of homicide while sitting in his office talking to him about moving policy. <laughs> what did he say? He, he had a new, his meeting came up. <laughs> 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 he, he had like a five-minute window to get to his next meeting. So oh, wow. He, <laughs> Yeah, that that was funny. That was funny. But you know, it, it's we have to do better. We have to, you know, be we have to educate ourselves and become informed. Um, there's a lot of things that as citizens of this, you know, of the state that we can do to to change the realities, the, the burdens that we're taking, you know, mm-hmm. on, on for institutions, cornerstone institutions. I mean, the the criminal legal system is essential to a, to, to the fibers of American mm-hmm. the American way. Mm-hmm. But, but not if we're doing it wrong. Right. You know what I mean? So that's what I'm doing at, you know, my, my title at MJA is I'm their campaign director. Um, and I came in back in March to help, uh, you know, facilitate the direction and the strategy of how we can get a good time policy instituted mm-hmm. in the state of Michigan. Um, what that has now culminated to is us working with several legislators offices um you know we're looking for both democratic and republican support and sponsorship how much how much republican support do you get on this because i i would assume that you get probably a a lot of democratic support but well so yeah of course right dems will will be more open to the conversation right they've been more receptive to the conversation (laughs) Republicans want to know why does it make sense, and that's what I found working with, you know, lawmakers is that Republicans are concerned about appropriations. Where's the money coming from? Mm-hmm. You know, great, great idea, wonderful, <coughs> wonderful thing to do. Mm-hmm. How are we gonna pay for it? Right. I don't have the money to pay for that. You come up with the money, yeah, we could talk about it. Um, but when you're talking sound policy with Republicans and highlighting dollars. Mm-hmm. Like different conversation, like the holistic approach to doing what's right isn't you know maybe not the priority there, and <laughs> and I'm not saying that you know these are bad folks. It's just right. they're more fiscal fiscally responsible right. than the other side maybe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's okay. We we need that. You know, we we it's need somebody. To, yeah, we need yeah. somebody to be fiscally responsible. Um, now, when they bring up where are we going to get the money from, what is your guys' response? What is MGA's response to that? Well, there's there's no money that needs to be raised to push this policy. Just needs to be allocated. MDLC already has the processes to calculate time. Time computation exists inside the Department of Corrections. Okay. They already calculate time based on 30-day intervals. So 
our legislative asks for uh, Michigan is that um, a policy be in place that affords uh, retroactivity so that it would be applied to everybody currently incarcerated. Okay. That it has no crime carve-outs. So, like, if you're convicted of the sale of drugs and if you're convicted of homicide, you both have the opportunity to receive the same amount of good time credit based on your behavior that anybody mm -hmm. else would. Um, and the reason for that is if we don't start, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, Advocacy, advocacy work for CJ reform, but everything has been about nonviolent offenders. Well, we we can you know attribute this change to mm -hmm. nonviolent folks. We can right. give this to nonviolent folks. We don't want to touch violent folks. But the violent people are the ones that are in there, like doing better. They're the ones that are focused. They're the ones that really like, damn, I, I messed up, and I mm -hmm. really have to think about some things here. Mm -hmm. Because they have the most amount of time, right. usually. Right. But also, going back to my point, is that only 1% of the people incarcerated in Michigan won't get out. I mean, that's a lot of folks. Right now, you're talking about 31,000 people. Mm -hmm. 31,000? That's a lot of people. That will be in society. That's a city. <laughs> every year... They're kicking out 7,000 people, roughly. Wow. So every year, this community receives 7,000 people. They receive and dismiss 7,000 people. Yeah, it's about the same. Yeah. Wow. It's about balanced. So I think we commit set like upwards of 7,200. I think the last annual commitment received was like about that. And the parole was about 6,800. So a few hundred off. Yeah. That's insane. That's a lot of people out of the community, man. That's a crap ton of people. <laughs> Holy There's a lot of people out of the community throughout the state of Michigan. And most of them are coming from Wayne County, Kent County, Genesee County, Ingham County, mm -hmm. uh, Washtenaw County, uh, obviously. Where Metro areas. Wherever there's a, a urban core, that's where your, 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 your base is coming from. Mm -hmm. I mean, 54% of the people incarcerated black. Wow. In Michigan. Michigan? Yeah. Wow. It's absurd. Well, I mean, there's 9, 10 million people here. Black people, percentage is like 14% African-American wow. in the state. Wow. So, but, but out of 31,000 people, half of it's black. Now, I don't know if you know the percentages of that either, but would, um, would it be because of drugs or? Well, yeah, I, I think that, uh, Again, going back to the Reagan administration, mm -hmm. the Reagan administration, you know, they they didn't initiate tough on crime. They crystallized it mm -hmm. with um, the anti-drug policy. Right. right. They 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 crystallized how American le criminal legal systems should approach this pandemic that we were facing well as you see 84 through 87 uh, the the crack epidemic skyrocketed and plagued every black community mm -hmm. in america yeah no black community was saved from crack mm -hmm. not one not one yeah and by the time we were going into the 90s 
we have like in 1987, 88, they, you know, this happened as, as a wave across America, but Michigan instituted it, and I believe in 87, is the automatic waiver provision. So here you have late 80s, you've incarcerated a large body of black male uh, folks in America. Mm -hmm. The um, legal age. Right, so we're talking 18 to 30 right. are incarcerated. Wow. Well, now you have the children of those men being ushered into the prison system as juveniles mm -hmm. because of this <laughs> spike in violence, because of this spike in illicit drug sale. Mm -hmm. So the violence came from the illicit drug sale. Mm -hmm. But then, in you know, leaving in, out of the 80s, going into the 90s, other policies giving states an incentive to say, hey, if you... Um, if you create a, a policy that will mandate that somebody serves, you know, 20 to 30 years in prison for a drug offense, we'll give you money to, to, to house them. Well, now I have, I'm built six, seven more prisons. Right. And yep. At one point, Michigan had like 47 prisons operating. Holy shit. <laughs> right now what? they got, they say that there's only 29 in operation, but it costs $33 million to operate it. Wow. So like, they, we're only max capacity at 31,000. Mm -hmm. Like they don't even need all of those facilities up and running currently. So wow. a lot of money that's being allocated to, to that budget is allocated to run all facilities that are debilitated. The conditions are horrible. They may even only have 100 people in, at the facility. Well, you had mentioned in the beginning about, um, about having to worry about going to the chow hall or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because your your potatoes might have maggots on it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. an example you gave. So is that something like that would that you would see in prison? Oh yeah. So uh, when I first went in, it, uh, food services was ran by the state. So state employees um, usually it would be an officer that would be allocated to that post, and then they just they've been doing it for twenty years. Mm -hmm. um, they changed that. 2012, 13, somewhere up in there, and they went to a privatized food provider. Okay. I mean, it was commonplace to hear about maggots and rice, um, uh, uh, rat droppings in corn. Oh, my gosh. Um, and they would still serve it? Yeah. Wow. Mm. <laughs> I laugh because for <laughs> me it's like, you know, I can remember being in you, segregation you, and getting a, a tray full of fecal matter. You're saying it like, like yeah, it's just normal, normal thing. Yeah, I'm, like, I've been in segregation and got a tray with fecal matter on it. Here, you you can eat it, and I had to eat around it. Wow. It was Gosh. in one. You know how you get those trays where it's like sectioned off, portioned mm -hmm. off. Yeah. And the portion for probably like fruit. Wow. And fecal matter in it. And said, well, I mean, that's your tray for the next week, so you'll eat around it or you won't. Holy cow. I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> Neither do I. That's, that's disturbing. That's really disturbing that we allow that to happen. Well, I hear that, I, I, and I agree. Like we, As a society, we should be up in arms about the way in which we treat people who are other, period. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do it for every other demographic, a person that's other. We, we go the extra mile to consider folks. But um, when it comes to people who are incarcerated, that like when you receive that scarlet letter, you're the dredge of the earth. 
no nobody really wants to engage with that person. Mm-hmm. They think that those folks deserve to be there. Right. Um, yeah. you they know, deserve the worst of the worst. I've had friends, associates and friends that, you know, cellmates, men that I've mentored. Um, I'll even go so far as to say that I've been a father to in prison. Um, everybody is not, there are, there are great people incarcerated, great people incarcerated horrible circumstances for them, mm-hmm. horrible realities for them to deal with. But, you know, I, I, I know a, a young guy in particular who killed a man who, who had raped his mother several days prior and was breaking back into the house to assault her again. Wow. He gave this guy life in prison. He gave him life in prison. He was 16, 15, 15. Wow. And, you know, so, like, he's not a bad kid. He just didn't want his mother raped. Right. And, you know, we, I know him well. know him real well. I, I know men in there who, you know, uh, a, a, a kid who killed his girlfriend on accident and tried to hide it. Oh. Just a scared kid. He don't know what to do. He just he tried to hide it, tried to cover it up, thinking that he, you know, could get away with it if he hit her. Okay, this guy mm-hmm. like forty five years plus life. Wow. You no, know, so that's we we we. Redemption is this, I think, a fallacy in the American psyche. Mm-hmm. We want to see folks who've been antagonized be the victor. Mm-hmm. We love it. I yeah. mean, when Batman was getting beat up by Bane, <laughs> everybody hated it. When Batman, you know, regained his composure and got his stuff together and beat Bane, it's like, yeah, yeah, the, the, the hero. We we love to see it, you know. Well, I mean, like you had mentioned with the the senator you were talking to, mm-hmm. he was he was all for whatever you were talking about. But yeah. the minute you had mentioned that you had you had mm-hmm. attempted to kill somebody. Then, then he was it was all over at that well, point. Well, yeah, I, and, it's, and I think it's easy to be like, oh, "Fuck that guy!" Like he's he's mm-hmm. he's a piece of shit. He's always a piece of shit because right. he he did this thing when he was fourteen or fifteen, even mm-hmm. sixteen years old. Yeah, yeah. But the truth is, people change over time. When you're sixteen, when you're sixteen years old, you you have no idea what what's going on in the world. You don't even know who you are at sixteen. Man, you don't. Some people don't know who they are in, at 40. <laughs> Dude, I still don't know who I am. <laughs> but so, you know, it, it, looking at how we treat society that lives in poverty, because, you know, crimes that you, guys who are selling drugs will use the, the most vile folks in our society, or this is what our society would say. It's like these people, you know, they destroy the American fiber. Mm-hmm. Illicit sale of drugs in communities where violence is the the go-to of of control, so to speak, or the go-to response for dispute resolution. Um, I don't know anybody I grew up with who sold drugs because they wanted to. 
They did it because they had, they need, they thought they needed to. They, mm -hmm. they made an irrational decision to say, I need to sell drugs mm -hmm. to support myself. I know men whose m mothers smoked crack and, and sold their bodies while their father was dead or in jail. I know men who whose mother and father smoked crack. I sold drugs to my family members, my aunts and uncles, mm -hmm. 12, 13, 14 years old. Wow. I helped destroy their lives, right? Yeah. These are this is what people are coming from, desperate. Mm -hmm. Desolate reality. Mm -hmm. On average, if your household in America does not bring in $72,000, you can't pay for an alternator fix if your truck goes bad. Mm -hmm. So, we look at people with a $40,000 a year job that has a 401k plan. Mhm. Mm has 100% medical, 80% dental, 60% vision. You're getting $40,000 salary that's going to look like about $34,000 after taxes. That's not, that's not shit. It's not. So if your significant other, if you have one, does not make 40 as well mm -hmm. and doesn't have like student debt out of right. their ears <laughs> right. like you you can't even pay your bills month to month yeah like you're struggling with paying bills yeah and 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 we criminalize that we criminalize people for being broke they yes they come they they behave in a manner that our society is saying we, we detest this behavior mm -hmm. we have to do something about you mm -hmm. because that can't stand so put them in a closet as opposed to saying, wait a minute, well, what's the problem? He robbed that person because what? Well, he can't pay his bills. Well, that ain't our fault. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That We make ourselves believe it's not our fault. Yes, it is. If people can't eat in this society, it's our fault. Mm -hmm. If they can't work, it's our fault. Right. If they cannot house themselves, it's our fault. We're here. They're here. Where's our responsibility to our fellow citizen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we pour all this money and resources into, like you said, the prison system mm -hmm. and all these mm -hmm. other... Um, I had a gentleman on yesterday, and after the podcast, he was telling me about how much money the city uh, gives the, the police force and how, you know, he was talking about how they he believes that they need to reallocate it. Mm -hmm. not, not defund them, but reallocate it to different mm -hmm. areas and mm -hmm. whatnot. But we have all this money that we we give away to these certain things that are being used for whatever. Why aren't we reallocating some of that into the community to provide better jobs, better yeah. opportunities for people, um, impoverished communities? That's a common question. Like, why don't we? Right. So $2.3 billion a year on corrections. What you're talking about is cities annual budgets for mm -hmm. uh, police funding, right? Yeah. In Grand Rapids, the police uh, agency there receives 32% of the general city budget. It's millions of dollars mm -hmm. that they get to buy bullets and guns and trucks. There's not one community or one organization or program in my community in Grand Rapids ran by the police. Nothing funded, no community engagement opportunities, no uh, networking opportunities, no mixers, no, none of this, right? Like mm -hmm. nothing put into the community, but more police that don't live there. Wow. 
There's somebody from East Lansing police in my neighborhood. Really? Fresh out of college. Wow. He talked to me like for 20 minutes the other day. That, not not long out of college, you know, maybe three or four years out of college. Went to 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 a state. Mm-hmm. Is from East Lansing. Went through the academy there, and he's placed in our neighborhood. He doesn't know any of the old ladies around there. Any of the old men. He knows nobody that he he doesn't know what the culture is like. Mm-hmm. So if he sees two young men uh, holding the arm of uh, this lady, I'll call her Miss Jenkins. They may say, "Well, he might. They may be assaulting her." Right. They walk her to the store and the bus stop every day. That's that's part of the problem <laughs> is you you do, you get police officers who aren't part of the community. Yeah. And then they they kind of look at it from like an outside perspective. Like, they may see, like, a black man walking, like, oh, what's he up to? Right. And like, I, I don't said, know him, so he, what's he up to? I don't know him because you're not from over here. Right. You don't know that he's walking this. He's going to wait for the old lady who lives next door to him because she takes the bus home from work. Right. And that was his mother's best friend. And he does it every day. He's did it every day for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. You don't know it because you're not from here. Did you see the uh, video? I'm sure you did. The Of the uh, police officer or the sheriff from Flint, Michigan. He, Mr. Swanson. Sheriff Swanson. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he told everybody, "We're we're one of you. We're we're not going to. Uh, uh, we're going to put our batons and and our shields down, and we're going to walk with you." I, I, I like, thought that was. Pretty I like cool. that sh- the sheriff up there. Um, so, I, I'm the campaign director for MJA. I'm the West Michigan Regional Coordinator for Nation Outside. Um, I run my own consultant firm. Um, wow. I'm starting my own nonprofit. Uh, couple of for-profit businesses. What's the nonprofit? Uh, the Justice League. So social justice issues, um, but a little different. I think I met, I think I, I was trying to get a hold of somebody from that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, I, I have a bone to pick with America about a lot of things, man. <laughs> and, 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 you You're know, on a while working at the ACLU, I learned uh, so much. I'm talking so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that you know, we, we fund, the way that we throw money at police agencies is absurd. The way that we have, um, there's 9 million people in America on correctional control. So jail, prison, parole, probation, 9 million. 9 million people in America under correctional control. We're spending too much money I don't want to call it fear-mongering, right? Mm -hmm. Black-on-black crime is a lie. Just as much as saying white-on-white crime. Like, white people kill white people. Mm -hmm. If you get into a dispute with your buddy around the corner, like, you... There's nobody coming here from Chicago to have a pick a fight with you. (laughs) Right. Or or from my neighborhood to pick a fight with you. Mm -hmm. They don't know you. The hell are they going to fight you for? Mm-hmm. They're gonna fight the guy down the street he has a problem with. It just so happened that guy lived in the community. He's probably right. black too. Right. Well, yeah. there's no difference. The the rates for black on black crime is like eighty eight, eighty seven percent for oh. white on white crime is like eighty nine percent. Okay, so it's right so around the same. It's the same. Yeah. White males kill white males at the same rate that black males kill black males. Just at the same rate as Hispanic males kill Hispanic males. So where did that come from? The black on black crime thing. <laughs> Because it's something that I've heard repeated a lot. Like, oh, they, they kill each other, you know. Um, I like to believe that I'm a, <clears throat> I was an avid reader in prison. 
Like, I would read anthropology books that was this thick. Wow. Just for shits and giggles. Um, but I remember reading this book called Anacalypsis. And the guy, I can't recall his name at the time, but he, he pointed me to another one of his works where he explains um, the reason that we can mistreat the African is because we've spent eons, eons educating folks on how less than us they are. Mm. The only way that you can mistreat another person is if in your psyche you believe that you're better than them. Right. Or that they don't deserve that treatment. So all of the anthropological studies that we now know were erroneous about bone structure and um, brain cavity volume and mm -hmm. uh, you know evolution about black folks, mm -hmm. we know that these studies are wrong now. We know that they were erroneous. Not that they were lying; they just were wrong. Um, those were the, that was the that laid the foundation for African people to be mistreated in this world because you can't mistreat people who you see as equal to you or as, as, as just as viable as you, you right. can't do it. Right. Your moral compass won't allow it. Mm -hmm. But if you can look at that person and say they're not human. They're less than me. Yeah. Everything says they're not human. The whole world says they're not human. Mm -hmm. Who am I to say different? Right. The whole world says it. The whole world knows it. Mm -hmm. The only people that don't know it is them that that's the philosophy so it's very easy to see how you know 67 percent of those nine million people are black nine million people that are under correctional control in this country 70 percent of them are african-americans so it's not a secret that you know it's, it's not it's obvious to me that black the black on black crime tag if you will mm -hmm. is to continue the narrative that impoverished black men and women need to be incarcerated there's no other reason for that narrative is that we need to be incarcerated we need to be controlled there needs you need to fear mm -hmm. the young black male and the young black woman because they're going to do something to you and the only way for us to help you is if you give us the power and the authority to control them right and we'll send them in prison and you know i <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to say this. I don't know how this land, right? <laughs> Slavery is has never left. It has not gone anywhere. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation is a paper tiger. It don't have no teeth. Uh, it's a lie. We've been lied to. Not just black people. Americans have been lied to. We've been misguided, misdirected, misinformed, miseducated. Um, I mean, both of you guys learned in school that Christopher Columbus discovered Native Americans in America. Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> what? Yeah. Everybody learned that. They, they still mm -hmm. haven't changed it. Right. Nope. They haven't. We know that this is not the truth. Right. They say that the Civil War was about freeing slaves. And we know that's not the truth. Yeah. But we still teach it. We still teach it to our children. Why is that? It's just that we haven't changed the educational system. What? Man, look how great it's working. <laughs> it works. It does. It even works. Though, even though we all know. <laughs> 
black people love Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> they, don't, they don't know him. They don't know that Abraham Lincoln, most folks would not know that Abraham Lincoln detested slaves and said, if I didn't have to do this to save the Union, I wouldn't. If I didn't have to free one slave, I, 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 would, I, I wouldn't dare do it. Nobody highlights that in the narrative. Nobody highlights that there was a 13th Amendment prior to the one that was enacted. Nobody highlights the fact that that 13th Amendment gives states unequivocal decision-making power to treat impoverished people the way that they see fit. We don't unpack it because it's either too much to understand, mm -hmm. it's too convoluted to understand, um, or we just believe that we're not part of that the fabric of, of, of the American way. So mm -hmm. I don't want to know nothing about that, right? Um, but for those folks who do know, I mean, I, I would love to hear people talk about it more. Um, the black-on-black -black crime, the narrative that black men are violent and, you know, everything to boot with that are all lies. And it's propaganda told to us, black, white, and other in America, mm -hmm. to continue the narrative that, this demographic of persons is different. It's okay mm -hmm. to put them in closets. It's okay to kill them on t television in front of everybody. It's okay to choke this guy in, in front of everybody in America. Nobody's going to care. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? Nothing. We saw one conviction or, or you know, a couple of convictions out of some of the more recent, you know, violence perpetrated on black males by police agencies in the country. But large in part, nothing has ever happened to folks mm -hmm. who, you know, and, and the first time we saw it in our face was Rodney King. Right. Yeah. We seen Rodney King be like, just get whooped up and down the street by police. Then we saw all of those police get off. Like, that narrative told white America one thing. It told black America another thing. Right. Yeah. It told white America, you do how you see fit. You treat them how you want to treat them. Told us, you'll be treated how they want to treat you. You're at the mercy of this other race demographic. That And that's, that narrative has continued. It hasn't changed. Um, and until people are like honest and truthful about it, that mm -hmm. there's no such thing as black on black crime. And, you know, anthropologically, you know, all of them, like, we're so far beyond those early studies of, right, like, evolution yeah. that, that nobody's even gonna listen to that garbage, right? Yeah. But deep in our psyche, we still behave and respond like that. It's, uh, isn't it called, like, incomplicent biasism or? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, to, <laughs> it's to kind some of the extent. Same, yeah, kind of yeah, the same yeah. Thing. I like to call it deceptive intelligence. You'll deceive yourself that 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 this isn't what's going on when you know that it is. Mm -hmm. You'll use deceptive intelligence and, 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 and frame it like this. Well, we know that in, in America, the percentage of, you know, uh, African-American persons um, disenfranchised from the employment sector is X number. No, no, just say that you know that white supremacy is in play and most institutions that have white supremacist cultures that automatically pushes folks out of the hiring pool. Like, say that. Because that's accurate. Disparities aren't accurate. 
there isn't a dispute. There's one disparity. One, not multiple. Mm-hmm. You have an adverse philosophy about including this demographic of persons into your company. Mm-hmm. That's racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's not a disparity. Yeah. Like, you know, you can split it like that and tailor it for public opinion and uh, political correctness. But if we ain't learned nothing from our most recent um, president, uh, Mr. Trump, you know, levels of uncomfort get things done. Like, discomfort moves people. Absolutely. You you don't move until you're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made America uncomfortable, and they said a lot <laughs> about it. They, they did. They yeah. either said, hell yeah, that's yeah. how I feel too, bro, or... Yeah. I don't know about that. I'm going here, man. I'm not going to lie to myself with right. you. But well, it definitely, he definitely pushed people into two different parties. And like you were, whether you were the extreme right, you, mm-hmm. you, you went towards him. Mm-hmm. Or if extreme left, you, I mean, I guess some extreme left kind of agreed with some of the ideas of him. But then they also like were like, uh, I can't mm-hmm. really associate myself with, right. with that. Right, right, right. Because that's right. so extreme. Right. It's kind of crazy. But, it's, but going back to the poverty thing, I'm glad you mentioned that. You look at uh, two broke people. Like, just look at the relationship between two impoverished men, black and white, and the relationship between two very wealthy men, black and white. Mm-hmm. Well, these two folks, because of all of the other variables, the two men living in poverty are probably going to have all kind of angst and discord with each other because of the social structure, right? Social structure, as in like, um, just like how we engage with each other, where okay. we may engage with each other. Um, let's say the, these two men are mechanics, and mm-hmm. the, the African and African American is going to the, the Caucasian male that is the supervisor at, right. a, at a shop. Right? Okay. They're both living in poverty, but this guy has a position over, right. over him. Right. The, 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 the African American may feel. Um, that he was mishandled or mismanaged based on this guy being white because of his narrative. Mm-hmm. But his narrative may be, well, the black guy's going to be lazy anyway, and he got a record, and I don't want right. to deal with that. You know, He yeah. don't know nothing about this guy. He don't know the guy got seven kids he's taken care of by himself, mm-hmm. that he's a single father, right. that he got two other jobs. This is just to you know, help pay for school shoes. Right. He don't know that. Mm-hmm. He didn't give himself a chance to learn it. Right. His mind, this guy ain't nothing. I can. He, he mm-hmm. lazy anyway. Yeah. Probably gonna be in jail in a month. Why give him a job? Right. Man, get out of here. And so we both have those things, right? But these two wealthy people, they don't care nothing about your skin color. He care about how much money you got. Mm-hmm. That you you don't see people not making business deals because they white or they black. They're yeah. wealthy. Yeah. They don't care. It don't affect them. Money's Why? the same color. <laughs> because if you have resources, mm-hmm. the playing field is now level. Right. Well, this is a world full of people that don't have resources. And the only th- only way that we respond to it is by locking them up. So if you don't have no resources, go to jail. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, you can't pay your bills, go to jail. You you can't make money in this nation. You're not an entrepreneur. You don't want to go to school. You're not intelligent. You don't have mm-hmm. a, a high school diploma. You can't go to school. Go to jail. Just go to jail. It's really your only option. 
I'm sure. Right. I'm it, sure. I'm sure. Yeah. If you're in that position, you feel like that's your only option. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you feel like you're inevitably going to end up there anyways. Man, I thought my mother was rich when she told <laughs> me that our house costed twenty five thousand dollars. Wow. It's like what? <laughs> you made twenty five thousand dollars. That's a lot house? of money. <laughs> my God, that's a bunch of money. Like seven. Don't know nothing about money. Mm-hmm. Twenty five dollars ain't nothing. Twenty five thousand dollars is nothing. It's a right. house, piece of garbage. Yeah, that's right? poverty. Yeah, and then when I realized, like, oh, my mother can't rub two hot coins together. I'm not going through this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to live like that. I can't even go to school to get what I'm getting talked about every day. Mm-hmm. The way I look, right? I'm not even going to school. I was so intelligent, man. I'm talking about weird kid in school. Like, <laughs> I was supposed to be an architect somewhere. Wow. Like, really had you know academics and administrators getting behind me to push me towards an architecture career like and in the seventh grade wow and i just i couldn't i wouldn't do it i wouldn't do it something didn't sit right with me teachers would come to my mother and say listen he does the work or he'll he'll give me the answers but he won't do the work he won't show it and i'm like i can't tell you how um x times five uh through the foil process comes out to this i know that's the number (laughs) But give it to me in drugs, I tell you. <laughs> I will. I can tell you how the, the ounce will transfer over to this many grams. And I can explain algebra to you like that because mm-hmm. that's relevant to my everyday life. It's kind of funny. I worked with a guy. He was like, um, he's now passed away, but he was telling me that he sucked at math. In school, he sucked at it. But then once he started he started selling drugs, he was like, I learned all about grams and ounces. <laughs> it's funny. I was a mentor in uh, um for uh, ASL and GED courses and a uh, tutor for GED courses in prison. And I, this kid, he was he had one test for the GED to take, was the math test. And he was like, bro, like, I don't even want to look at it. I'm scared to even open the book. He was, it was almost as though when it came to numbers, he was dyslexic. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, I don't know how I'm going to get to him. I don't know how I'm going to help him get this GED. Like, he going to fail. And then I thought about it. I was like, this guy, is, he's from the streets. He loved drugs. He sold drugs since he was a young kid. He saw his father sell drugs, his mother sell drugs. And I went to talking to him about it and drugs. And he got it. He understood it immediately. Wow. It's just, again, <laughs> student not understanding the curriculum. It's right. the teacher's responsibility to figure it out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that goes back to a different point. But, yeah, I... You know, we, 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 we hide and, and, and conceal that we don't know things. And, and that's not a, a black right. thing. That's a male thing. That's mm-hmm. a human thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a self, self-worth self thing. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of people in this world that, that haven't had opportunities, that haven't had uh, resources. And, and you, we, we shouldn't other them because of it. We shouldn't treat them like, you know, they're the scourge of the earth. Absolutely. Because, you know, they, they didn't have an opportunity or, or don't have resources at their, mm-hmm. at, at their fingertips. Um, you know, when we share resources and share information that can then, you know, build into resources, we're doing uh, m- much more of a service to our community, mm-hmm. much more of a service to, you know, our human uh, counter peers. Um, and, and we have to do better about things like that. I mean, if you we want our society to be different, we have to do it. Like, yeah, we have to make a proactive. Yeah, you're the, you're the manager yeah. of the society. Yeah. We're, we're the ones managing it. Mm-hmm. Why not be very active and be proactive about 
hey, I'm intentional about making sure that this part of American culture is better or this part yeah. of our fibers of our society are better. Um, whether that's coming from an advocacy standpoint, whether you're talking about municipal government or state government, federal government, mm -hmm. um, the education system, employment, housing. Uh, I don't know about here in Lansing, man. It costs $1,000 for like a studio apartment in Grand Rapids. Yeah, that's insane. Nobody can pay it. Yeah. Nobody can. I have a job. I can't. I can't pay that. Man, I have <laughs> like a, I have a good job, like a good job, yeah. and I can't pay that. <laughs> I got seven <laughs> jobs and I can't pay. It, man. I don't. You know, I. It's to live in America is tough. Mm -hmm. It is tough, man. Yep. Um. You know, and that's well, one of the it, biggest issues. I mean, it kind of brings see. us back to these impoverished communities. Where like if you don't have like I have a good job and mm -hmm. I I couldn't pay a thousand dollars a month for a studio apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean I I could, but why would you? It wouldn't facilitate your life. Exactly, and so then so then that leaves me with one choice: I have to go to an impoverished community, and and rent a house or an apartment that mm -hmm. you know is is not in a good area. Right, and then you just kind of become. Uh, a victim of, yeah, go of your stay, surroundings. Go stay there for 15 years and see how bad your blood pressure gets. <laughs> like, really? Go live in that community for 15 years mm -hmm. and don't see if you don't have migraines and, and high blood pressure. Yeah. And you start to have, you know, you, you like, damn, what's going on with me, man? Let me go get a stress test. And they're <laughs> like, hey, you got some erratic movement beats in your heart, and that's coming from stress. Mm -hmm. You're stressed every day because when you come home from work, it's about seven guys at the corner selling drugs. Right. Well, you, yeah, got, you can't pay to live nowhere else. And if you have kids, you don't want to send them right. outside to go play. You're not going to. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be in the house ride driving you crazy. Now, they stressed out. So, yeah. you know, it, 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 we, we don't see the connectors to a lot of it. Mm -hmm. But it's obvious. It's there in our face. We don't see it when we hide our heads, man. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And we, we don't. I remember reading a quote. It wasn't a quote. It was looking at the etymology of the word citizen or citizenry. And the, the etymology of it, the, the, the core of the word came from to be involved. Like you weren't considered a citizen of a community in ancient times if you didn't do something in the community. Right. If you weren't active in the community, if you didn't sell the community groceries mm -hmm. or vegetables or put horseshoes on the horses or fixed wheels on the carts, like yep. you weren't considered a citizen. That, that kind of goes back to being part of a tribe too. Yeah, you know, yeah. like everybody had their part. You're either a hunter gatherer or you know you you took care of things that. At, at camp <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because in like criminal justice reform work there's this talk about restorative justice mm -hmm. everybody mostly like from west michigan and I, you know dutch reformers are like hey we got to institute restorative practices in the court process we should have restorative practices a restorative restorative court even right mm -hmm. well the first places we saw restorative practices were in african tribes where if you and I, if I assaulted you and took your life, mm -hmm. and let's say you were the person who shepherd, were the shepherd for the goats, I have to do that for an allotted amount of time. I got to go <laughs> do that work. That's what the agreement would be. Wow. You took one of our tribesmen. Mm -hmm. How are we going to eat? Right. He coming over here for 10 years. We sent him home. Matter of fact, he'll marry my daughter in 10 years when, when his time working here is done. 
That was right. your you were restoring mm-hmm. what you took from the community. Right. Right. Yeah. So we'll rely today on ancient practices, but we'll ignore those realities right. that really come with it that you know, these are things that you should be instituting and looking at the mm-hmm. historical context of what we're dealing with. And that goes to how we deal with impoverished persons. It was just like, I, I don't, that's not my tribesman. Right. I don't have to do that. Yeah. Now, as far as MGA, where, where are things at with that? Yeah. So we, um, we're working with, uh, I'll, I'll leave this Senator nameless because he may change his mind somewhere down the line is he, but, is he republican no no it's a democrat okay. who we're looking for sponsorship so okay um we were we worked with his office and the process is this um john q citizen gives uh senator x some you know some suggestions of policy like hey mm-hmm. we i want a policy to put change the stop lights from green to orange um they send that person's suggestions off to what's called LSB or the Legislative Services Bureau. Okay. And folks in there help that senator's office or rep's office work with uh, the language of the bill. They draft it. They'll send it to that organization, John Q, back and forth for a minute before they, you know, both can agree that, hey, this is something that I would like introduced. Mm-hmm. And then that person can say, this is something I, I, I'm comfortable sponsoring. Um, so we something get, I can get behind. Yeah. So we got into a space where we're having those conversations. I mean, we've met with over a hundred elected officials in the state. Wow. Um, senators and, and reps together. Um, we've met with an absurd amount of judges, mayors, prosecutors, um, uh, advocacy groups, victims rights organizations we've talked to everybody in the state of michigan over the last six months about this piece of policy um we aim to introduce that policy in september okay um but we're doing a lot of education so this summer we've been you know from northern michigan to the southern south southeastern and and, and corners to to get folks educated on what the policy entails what Mm -hmm. the change would look like what we'd be asking from the state um, trying to get folks involved with volunteering, cherry festival, art festivals in Ann Arbor, uh, art fair in Grand Rapids, or art prize in Grand Rapids. So we're like mm-hmm. everywhere trying to accomplish an education boom before we really get ready to uh, drop this legislation in, in, in September and ask that uh, for every 30 days that an inmate in the Department of Corrections has served without a class one misconduct, that 30 days be taken off their minimum and maximum sentence. Okay. They are, MDOC already has the capacity to comp- compute these sentences like that, um, and they work off of thirty-day intervals, which is why we chose thirty days for thirty days. Okay. Michigan stands out in the states. We're one of six states that has absolutely no good time credit system. Wow. But we're the only state that makes inmates serve one hundred percent of their time without an earned credit or good time credit system. In Michigan, because of truth in sentencing, mm-hmm. the average person serves 126% of their sentence. So is that something you guys are trying to work over to overturn? Yeah, so this legislation, if passed, it it demolishes truth in sentencing. Okay. It, it just, it immediately severs it. Right. Which is why we're having so much opposition from like like the Prosecutors Association of Michigan. Oh, uh, prosecutors and, you know, lawmakers, police agencies wouldn't wouldn't like to see this pass because they'll, they'll hang their hats on the victim. 
Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there's a rebuttal for that. I'm, statistically, anybody in Michigan can go to ask Siri to give it to them. But um, we're, I, I want to say we're like second in rapes, 22nd in homicides, 15 in violent assaults. Wow. Michigan isn't any safer. Mm-hmm. We, you, you are spending, you, you're pitching into a $2.3 billion pot to keep you safe, mm-hmm. to keep your children safe. Right. But it's a lie. Because you're not safer. Mm-hmm. You're no safer keeping that money in your pocket than you are if you gave them your entire salary. They right. still couldn't make you safer. Right. But they will tell you that you're not safe, and they will tell you that, you know, as uh, advocates for victims, that they need to be there to be honest. And we, we're not asking for the truth in sentencing to not be there because we tell victims and defendants, you know, here's your, your sentence is 10 to 25 years. Mm-hmm. If you behave correctly, program correctly, you can earn X amount of time off of your sentence. The victim's going to know that. Mm-hmm. You're going to know that. You may get a misconduct for insubordination. Well, you lost 30 days. You didn't get to gain 30. You didn't lose any time. You just right. didn't get to gain any. You didn't get any. Mm-hmm. That's going to happen. But, you know, so it's not like, well, yeah, we passed this policy and everybody gets out of prison. No, people who do time right in prison get out of prison. Right. Like, if you're not doing time right, you still have to see the parole board, and they still have a say-so in whether or not you'll leave. Right. So, so like, let's say I'm in prison, um, and, I, and I get into an altercation with somebody. I, would, I wouldn't gain 30 days. But previous time that gained, I wouldn't lose that? No, like, so... Yeah, no, you wouldn't lose what has been gained. Okay. But you just won't be awarded that 30 days off of your gotcha. max and minimum because you caught a ticket, got into a fight. Right, you know? okay. But, uh, and, and there's loopholes for that for, you know, the administrators and MDOC to kind of make it biased, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, one bite at a time. Right. The, the only persons that, and this sucks for me, that we're not advocating for specifically is lifers. And the reason that we're not is because very small organization MJA is um, mm-hmm. not not having the the find the resources to get behind such a big bite. Right. The ACLU of Michigan, Safe and Just Michigan, my semi, um, excuse me, a couple other organizations are all working towards like rectifying long indeterminate and life sentences. Okay. Um, the Sentencing Project, AFSC, Nation Outside, Safe and Just Michigan, and ACLU are all in there. Like si- some of it's siloed, some of it's coalesced work where they'll be working in you know cohesive groups to try to get policies in place that changes you know life and long indeterminate. Mm-hmm. But we knew we didn't have the capacity for it, so right. it's like, hey, we'll. We'll take what you can get this right leg now. up, yeah, and we get you guys to hold that part of it up. Maybe we can get the whole thing to tip over. But, um, you know, I, I think that we'll be successful. I know that we'll be successful in the education. Mm-hmm. We'll change the narrative this year, next year. Okay. We might not get the policy passed for a couple. I would like to think that we could get it passed within this next year. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's very hopeful yeah um the climate of the legislature i'm told from so many colleagues they go by the the, the climate i hate that the political climate oh, I hate what that. sounds good oh my god i hate it because to tell me 
<clears throat> that this policy is a great piece of policy, but just not now. If it's great now, it's great now. Right. If it's the right thing to do three mm-hmm. years from now, it's the right thing to do three days ago. Right. Not right. because it's not the right time. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, not good for them politically. It's not good for them politically. So yeah. this is a ground softening campaign, if you will, like to get out, educate okay. uh, constituents, educate you know, lawmakers educate organizations uh, to give them realities of what's really going on. Like, we're incarcerating people at an alarming rate in Michigan to our detriment. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a fiscal hole because of it. We spend $2.3 billion a year on corrections, and nobody is safer. And, and, and Detroit is still, it's still the Detroit. most <laughs> violent city in America. Everybody knows that. Everybody says that. I mean, Ingham County now, I, to, to date, 22 homicides this year or something like that. It's gone up a lot yeah. this year, within the last year now. Grand Rapids topped yeah. out at like 37, 38 last year. Wow. Um, which was like exceeded the, the previous mm-hmm. high, which was like 33 or something. Wow. Which might have been, you know, a decade or two ago. But, um, yeah, we're no safer in the state. We're no better off. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so when do we get fiscally responsible about it right because you know my children your children anyway you want your children to have a good education you mm-hmm. want them to grow up in good communities good programs good institutions you don't want to have to you know go and say hey that's just not part of the american culture that we even you know, right. accept into our universe because of how bad it is right, right? Yeah. nobody wants to say that about the legal system or about you know um the, the, the criminal justice and crime and punishment aspect of our, our culture. Uh, we, we'd like to educate them and say, hey, that's, that wheel is working well. So I would think that in order to accomplish something like this, you would kind of have to change the, like, the minds and the way that like, judges and prosecutors mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Uh, prosecutors are like, hell no. Hell no. <laughs> what? I'm for the victim. Mm-hmm. You want me to let people out of prison early because that's their, it's ingrained in their psyche that well, right. I just have to be tough on crime because these yeah. people are bad people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the heart needle is tougher to move than the policy needle. Right. Policy is easy. Yeah, like policy can be instituted and nothing happen with it. Mm-hmm. Like the, nobody will adhere to it. But the policy passed, but I, I, I won't recognize it. When you change the heart and the mind, mm-hmm. and, and, and somebody who says no, like anybody comes through my courtroom with a homicide, I, life. Right. Okay, great. Now let me explain this to you. See if that anecdotal evidence impresses you. On the other side of it, you like your money, judge, your lifestyle, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. What if you had more of it? Like, what if you were able to do so much more good with more money? Right. If you didn't lock up people who didn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of the people in the Department of Corrections in Michigan are over the age of 40. Wow. So at that point, you start to age out of crime. Right. Right? Yeah. For every five years older you are, your recidivism potential drops by 4%. Wow. So by the time you're 45, 50 years old, it's like a 6% chance you'll commit a crime again. Mm-hmm. 
like we got a lot of old people locked up, a lot of people over fifty five, a lot of elderly men and women mm -hmm. um, who've been there, who's been there for thirty, forty, fifty years. I, I know a guy, fifteen years old, spent forty two years in prison. Wow. Good friend of mine, like comedic, you know, the best comic you'll ever come across. <laughs> I want to meet this guy. <laughs> and and. and he spent 42 years in prison from the time he was 16 for armed robbery. Wow. You know what I mean? And, and Why is he still in there? Well, he's home now. Okay. He was a juvenile lifer that eventually got out. But okay. Like, it's an armed robbery. Nobody was shot. Nobody was killed. Mm-hmm. Wow. 42 years. Yeah. Yeah, 42 of them. <laughs> That's insane. That's tough. But, yeah, I, you know, the organizations, Safe and Just Michigan, Nation Outside, MJA, My Semi, mm -hmm. um, American Friends Service Committee, A Brighter Way, the ACLU of Michigan, um, My Liberation, um, Michigan United, all of these organizations, uh, Fresh Coast Alliance are as one on West Michigan working to help reintegrate folks when they return from uh, incarceration. You know, w w there's going to be a need for us to, to view that demographic of persons differently. Right. And we need to start viewing them through the lens of, you know, it, it being an issue of poverty as opposed to an issue of crime and punishment, mm -hmm. as opposed to punishing people for crimes that we've made crimes because it's a, a response to poverty. Right. We need to now put the punishment side to education and, and get folks educated on what can be done and the processes to get out of poverty that, mm -hmm. that may help them in, in, in their environments and in the way in which they deal with folks. And then, and then with that, it would we would have to we would have to imp put in play like um, some community resources to help oh, sure. to help people. Sure, sure, definitely. I mean, we we definitely would have to get away from some gentrifying stuff. Yeah, like you know, you can't even come to. I, People who've never been to prison can't pay for housing in some areas of the state. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. And if you have a felony conviction, you won't get an apartment or a house. Yeah. You know, I, I remember I was able to get a mortgage loan before I was able to rent. Wow. Like, I had somebody say, no, I will not rent to you. But wow. the bank was saying, yeah, come in here so we can figure out the, the, the interest rate on this mortgage we're going to give you. Wow. Makes no sense. No. That's insane. <laughs> it makes no sense. Oh, that's kind of like I was interviewing a guy yesterday. He, he's a, a local guy who just started a business. Mm -hmm. And he was saying because he has a felony that um, he wasn't able to get a job working for Uber. Um, but he was able to or he wasn't able to get a job working for Uber as like uh, like delivering food on a bike. But he was able to start a business doing the same thing. He was able to have his own business, but he couldn't work for a company that did the same thing. Right. Because he has, he has a felony that, that, that happened is, six years is ago. Is that not insane? That, yeah, you can go and create your own company and be a what, whatever you're going to be, mm -hmm. but I would not. I won't hire you. Yep. I won't hire you to do it, but I'll work with you when you start your company. Oh, yeah. We, that scarlet letter is tough to get away from. Yeah. Um, you know, I still mention it. I'm not afraid of it. I don't. I embrace it. Like I don't use it as a badge of honor. But right. I'm not afraid to answer tough questions. I'm not afraid to have tough discussions. Um, and that's always a tough discussion for people to have because they'd much rather formerly incarcerated people who can really give you the narrative of what that is mm -hmm. stay quiet. Mm -hmm. You expose it. 
most folks are coming home and they're going to get a job at a factory and they're right. just going to work. I got good friends of mine. Like, man, how do you do it? You get, you going where to talk about what? <laughs> you going into the state capital to do what? You're talking rubbing, about this every day. Yeah, you're rubbing elbows with with high they officials. They think I'm crazy for having these conversations. That's how you change it. They'll never talk about it, right? Because they're just going to work, punching the clock, cashing a check, paying their bill. They don't. They're just trying to survive. survive. They survive. They back into survival mode. Mm-hmm. I don't want to survive. I spent 23 years, 27 years, really surviving. Mm-hmm. It's time to live, enjoy life, and the only way you change. do that is when you're included. Mm-hmm. Right. So remember the two wealthy folks, they can have a conversation over shrimp right. baskets or sitting, looking over the ocean or whatever. These other guys are in an argument because they don't have nothing. They don't have no resources. One thinks his job puts him mm-hmm. in an elevated position. And now they have a conflict that they can't resolve. Right. Because neither one of them got resources enough to say, I have a friend in my network that has taught me about conflict resolution. This guy's mm-hmm. having a bad day. Let me just back off of it. Mm-hmm. No, you don't even got conflict resolution. So now the two of y'all fighting. Right. Now one of y'all got to go into jail. And let's say the guy who, the mechanic, the, the manager goes to jail for a week. Say it's a Friday. He can't get out till Monday. Well, he was supposed to be back to work Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning. Now he Monday lost his morning. job. He lost his job. Mm-hmm. So now when he get out, he, can't, he, he couldn't pay for his car. He left his wife with two kids mm-hmm. while he spent two weeks in jail and lost his job. Now he doesn't have a car. He can't get to and from work. Now, whatever job he gets, he got to catch a bus. Within six months, this guy homeless. And, if, you know, over something small that could have been adjusted very easily, mm-hmm. but we, we, we continue to put people in the blender, man, and they just come, it continues to snowball, snowball, snowball. Yeah. So, you know, somebody goes to jail for a traffic stop and spends three days, loses their job. Now they're homeless and can't get a job, got a felony conviction, and you're like, well, seven, you know, seven months ago, I was paying my own rent. Mm-hmm. I, I was doing good. It just so happened that I got into this fight at work. They said they sent the, the summons for me to come to court, and I never seen it. I moved. Right. I was moving. Right. I didn't get the mail. Now you got a warrant to show up for that criminal case, and you got a charge. So it's like we, we rely on it, saying you, you mm-hmm. are, if you're broke and you don't have no resources, our only way of dealing with you is to siphon you through the criminal legal system. Right. Yeah, there, there almost needs to be like a system in play for for people like that like like if you start going down that path mm-hmm. you can get a hold of this resource, resource and and be like okay this is what's going on i need help i need i need guess, to be guess, set on the right guess path guess what they'll tell you where's the money to run it right yeah well it's in the 2.3 billion dollars i'm helping you pay for <laughs> every year for the corrections <laughs> but yeah so a lot of a lot of stuff man our society's in bad shape and you know mm-hmm. i'm glad to 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 see folks such as yourself like highlighting you know highlighting who's doing good stuff what they're doing mm-hmm. where it's at um but just the amount of advocacy for not just for criminal justice stuff but social issues you know right um housing uh employment yeah. education um local governments uh, all of those things we we need to do better at it and uh, you know the generation of millennials i, I think are you guys are superman like I, you guys are Superman for us, mm-hmm. you know, um, because you're unafraid. You're not afraid to tell somebody to fuck off. 
and tell them about themselves. You're not afraid mm-hmm. to say, like, I'm not doing what? Do what? Get out of here. <laughs> I would never. You know, that's not right. And mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you that it's not right because I just don't care what you think about me. Right. Like, that energy from this generation is what's necessary for us to get pushed through because, you know, a lot of folks my older than me, they just tired. They don't want to do that. They don't want to do the battle no more. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's unfortunate, but it's fortunate that we do have a crop of, of young people, you know, not just in the state and this nation that are doing great work. Um, well, I think a, a lot of younger people, they realize that there's a lot of flaws, especially with the older generations. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they want to, they want things to change. And like, I mean, it's kind of funny to watch these, uh, organizations, like these big corporations, um, like I work at General Motors to watch them kind of change the way they, they, they promote things mm-hmm. based on the younger generation mm-hmm, because because mm-hmm. the younger generations they're, they're pushing for change yeah yeah you know i mean some of it is kind of ridiculous but hey but if, if you're passionate about something get behind it yeah you and know? and the power of the internet with you know social media and it oh dude it like this podcast will probably reach a lot of people. Listen, man, this is the best platform to convey or disseminate information. Absolutely. You know, music isn't in anymore. Like yeah. music has to be disseminated through platforms like this. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. to to have this type of end to, you know, the ether world mm-hmm. is like a resource that you have to leverage at your you know, disposal, that's wonderful, man. But yeah. when folks are involved in really getting information out to people across this world and, 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 and getting folks more interested or involved or just giving them a piece of education that may change their ideology. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. You know, I, I love to see young people, like, making noise and, and, and making people uncomfortable. Like, make <laughs> people uncomfortable, man. Absolutely. Make them... Did you know to the point where they're saying, "Hey, why do you feel like that? Why do you say that?" Like I, I need to hear more because mm-hmm. I, it sounds right, but but tell me more. Right now, here's an opportunity for you to educate somebody, and they're like, "You know what? I don't even think like that any longer." Mm-hmm. Off of a chance roundabout conversation. Well, I mean, it, somebody could listen to this podcast could just be like. They could have a, a previous opinion about you know people who are incarcerated. Yeah. Like fuck that guy. Like yeah, he yeah. he he tried killing somebody. Yeah. Then they listen to you talk and they realize how educated you are. And they 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 listen to you know how how you've changed and right. now you're trying to make a, a positive change. And they're like, oh, you know what? Maybe maybe I feel different about that now. Like I I guess I didn't really know too much about that. Right. And they they can see it from a different different light. I, I laugh. I remember doing a, a short doc for um. I think it was the ACLU. It was okay. for the smart justice stuff. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And it was put on uh, like an Instagram platform. And after like a week, a colleague of mine was like, Rich, don't even look at it. Don't like, don't. <laughs> I, I will never watch like interviews of myself. I don't either. Sometimes I can listen. Sometimes. But so they were like, no, no, you don't want to look at it. And I said, well, it must be a bunch of stuff being said. And she was like, oh, that's tons. So I, <laughs> I went through some of the, 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 the remarks, the comments. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, my God. You deserve to be there. Don't You shouldn't have did the crime. You know, oh, all God. of that stuff, right? It's typical. You know this yeah. when you say it. Yeah. 
like those folks don't know, man. No. They don't know. You know that they they don't know that that uh what those realities are like and and they're right. I did need some correction. Mm-hmm. It just I, I needed a hug. I didn't need a, a closet to live in. Right. You know, I needed for 24 years or right. 28. I, need, I needed somebody to hug me and say, you know, mm-hmm. these are some different things that you could be doing with your life. Right. But, you know, I will say this. I <clears throat> no regrets. A very unfortunate situation. Um the young man uh, who was the victim in my crime, his mother and I very, you know, I wouldn't say very close, but we're close. We talk. Um, we've engaged with one another, you know, myself and their family. Um, and, you know, I, as an adult, I definitely see things a whole lot different. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, being in society for the last four years, immediately I, I was able to see, like, wow, I don't operate like I did when I was a kid. Right. Like, that is crazy. That mm-hmm. I, This is an entirely different personality. In some right. similar circumstances, like who doesn't get into it with people at the gar- car wash or gas station? Right. Like, yeah. Come on. Every day, mm-hmm. somebody's flipping you off because you, you're speeding to get off yeah. the ramp or <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, nobody's jumping out at, I'm 42 years old. I'm not jumping out fighting people or right. people for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, I pay taxes and got health care, man. <laughs> <laughs> I could go get my teeth cleaned if I want to. Like right. I had no issues. <laughs> well, yeah, it's you know wonderful work, wonderful opportunities, and um, I, you know, very happy to be in society and able to be a voice for folks who don't have one. You know, one of the reasons why I started this podcast was because um, people always say, "Well, like you did this one thing, so you're a piece of shit," or. Or like you, you did this one thing. You'll always be that right. that person. You'll always be that person. Yeah. Like people change over. I mean, the course of even five years. I'm a completely different person than I was mm-hmm. two years ago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's one reason why I started this was because like everybody has a story. Whether you're a drug addict or an alcoholic or you know you, you were abused or whatever, mm-hmm. you're still you're you're a different person. I mean, in your opinions and your 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 life choices change over time mm-hmm. and uh i think that's real cool about you is you know like you obviously are ch- changed you're mm-hmm. not the same person that you were 24 yeah. whatever years yeah. ago uh whenever yeah. it was you committed that 16 crime. 16 that's why i said like i've been under correctional control for 27 years 27 20. so 23 inside and october makes 24 uh or, or four years on community supervision okay um that's a long time, man. It's a super long time. That's a long time. And it, like I remember first getting out, the anxiety I would have when I had to go report to my parole agent. Mm-hmm. I just thought I never was coming out of the building. Wow. I, like after the four or five months, I'm like, why? <laughs> and I never noticed it until like a girlfriend at the time said, hey, listen, you, you must have got to go see your agent this week. <laughs> and I'm like, why do you say that? She's like, because you're, like, you're real tight. <laughs> and I'm like, I do it in two days. And every week when I was coming, Mm-hmm. I was an asshole. <laughs> um, and then COVID hit, and I didn't have to go in anymore. And oh, it just, cool. <laughs> oh, I felt so much better, man. Because I always just thought that, like, no matter, I, I never knew what what, what could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, some paperwork got mixed up. Until we get it straight, you got to go in the closet again. Right. Like, please right. don't do that. I've been pulled over for traffic stops. Um. One time, an officer said something to me. He told me, welcome home. Wow. He's like, welcome home, man. Be safe tonight. Wow. Christmas Eve, speeding in 
Mount Pleasant going to a casino or something. Wow. Like, or coming from a casino during like, Christmas time. And he was just like, welcome home. But then I've had officers say, uh, I'm calling for backup. And I'm waiting till my st- staff supervisor get here. We're going to figure out whether or not we're going to pull you out of this car and search the entire thing and you. Just because you have a record? Yeah. Wow. It's like, all right, well, I'm just sitting here waiting on you to get there. And then the supervisor comes and say, well, did he, what did he do? Well, he didn't do nothing. I just ran him, and that popped up. Well, just no, imagine. No if, traffic violation? No. Let him go. Just imagine if you had a job you had to get to. <laughs> yeah, that's happened, too. Pulled over here on the, like, 469, um, and I'm supposed to be in a meeting with, like, two political directors and somebody uh, from, like, the Senate or the House. And I'm on the phone saying, I've got the state police out here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there in 10 minutes. I'm, I'm on the exit right now. But, yeah, um, not, you know, it, it comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing that uh, a more rational, mature mind can't handle at 42 mm. years old. Right. That I definitely couldn't handle at 16, you know. Right. Then it, I would have been assaulted by the police. <laughs> but, you know, <clears throat> as an adult, we, we do things differently, man. That's, mm-hmm. that's why we can't, we, we can't just look at humans and say they should be there forever. Right. That's that's not okay. I don't think I, no, if I if I've never if I've not was never in prison. I just don't think that would that that's okay. Mm-hmm. That we mistreat people that don't have like if if you are a serial killer, serial rapist, you you're doing things that you just you you have mental disabilities that you have no control over your behavior. Mm-hmm. That's a different conversation. That's a different conversation. In the 80s, 70s and 80s, all of the mental institutions in, in, in Michigan were closed. So, like, where did mm-hmm. all the mental health patients go? Prison. Prison. 85% okay. of the people that are incarcerated have a mental health issue in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Like, we're talking 26,000 people, 27,000 people wow. with a mental health problem. That's insane. So... Let's kind of let's kind of end it there. <laughs> yeah, no we're, problem. No we're problem. Uh, two hours in, almost two hours in. Yeah, I'm so, sure that it don't never go that long. No, I've I, I think this might be my longest one. But <laughs> I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Definitely, dude. Man. You're I I love hearing you talk. And um, so right now, where is the uh, where are you guys at as far as we're we're getting we're, support and yeah, whatnot. we're out in communities across the state. Okay. Where, cold door canvassing we're doing phone banking okay um voter engagement at you know if there's a farmer's market somewhere you can you know go to mja.org uh, to find okay. any of the events lists um or contact me at you know rich at myjustice.org uh we believe that september early september will introduce this legislation um, okay the process at that point you know it'll be a little wonky for mm-hmm. a couple of months um, but we, we, we look to, you know, make a lot of noise in the, in the last quarter of this year, educating folks on, you know, what the policy change would entail, okay. um, why we think that it's the best option for Michigan, um, you know, b- but we'll probably see the most momentum leaving out of the year, you know, October, November, mm-hmm. um, hopefully we're, we're successful. If not, we... We have some contingency plans in place that will make sure that, you know, MJA as an organization, a good time as a policy option is something that we keep, you know, in media. We keep that narrative vibrant. We keep that conversation going. Have you guys hit mainstream media? Uh, Some. Not not okay. much. Um, you know, hey, 
mainstream media like they expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's tough, but we have had some exposure through other events like um, you know our our partnerships with other organizations in okay. the area like CPR is one Citizens for Prison Reform group here uh, headed up by a, a colleague of mine Lois Polano. Um, those folks over there are doing stuff in the greater Lansing area regularly that okay. we're involved with. Usually there's some media component to that where we're getting some okay. exposure. But, yeah, definitely trying to get the word out as much as possible. You know, volunteers, interns are, like, working very hard on this issue. Um, so if somebody wants to come, come help you guys uh, – uh, go door sure, to door or whatever sure. they can just volunteer yeah they can they can go to our website at uh michiganjusticeadvocacy.org okay and um sign our volunteer form there's also a petition an online petition that that we have on there or you can contact us through the about tab on that at, on our website to contact okay. myself or the executive director organizing uh, managers directly about what those opportunities are um we have volunteer we have a bunch of interns working on like collecting those volunteers, organizing them in okay. particular departments. Um, but yeah, the, we're open for all kind of volunteer opportunities, awesome. man. We're, you know, pushing people. I'm going to Traverse City when I leave here uh, to, to talk to volunteers about a weekend of events there. Oh, wow. So, and then leaving there and going back to Jackson tomorrow, um, Jackson and Ann Arbor, a couple of events there we'll have volunteers at. Cool. Um, next month in Grand Rapids, we'll be having volunteers uh, at Rock the Block, which is a community event mm -hmm. on the 14th, uh, the 13th, Progressive at the Park. There's okay. so many events in the West Michigan area going on. I, if I sat here and quoted them, I probably have <laughs> the dates and the places mixed up. But yeah, um, we, we're, we're definitely looking for volunteers to help out cool. interns. If, if you know, there's folks out there who are looking for internships. And if you know interested in some criminal justice reform work, please reach out to us at uh, Michigan Justice Advocacy. We got a ton of work for you. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Um, I really, I really hope Definitely. that this thing really takes off for I you. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me and and you know having the uh, platform to raise an issue like this and give us an opportunity to speak to it. I've I've had a blast, man. You guys are wonderful. Well, absolutely, Thanks. man. I, I love it. Thank you. All right, appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you.